who, who teaches God? Who consults God? The answer is no one. It's, it's a, a, a message of wisdom. Verses 15 through 17, the, the, the understanding of God's greatness. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. Verse 16, Lebanon would not suffice for fuel. Lebanon is one of the most productive lands in Israel's time. And even their amount of productivity cannot be compared to how much fuel God can give to the world. So it's a, it's, a, it's a picture of his greatness. Verse 17, all the nations are as nothing before him. Think about how great God is, but he continues. Verses 18 through 20, again, just summarizing briefly here. The lesson is he's truly God. God is saying, not only am I not like all the other gods in verse 25, but I am true God. Even if you've been captured under Babylonian captivity, I am true God. And so that's why in verse 18 he says, To whom then will you liken God? And then verse 19, an idol? And I love this passage because it emphasizes two things. You can make idols out of gold if you're wealthy, but if you didn't get the Christmas bonus that you wanted, your paycheck's been shrinking even more and more, God says, to these idol makers, well, when they don't have enough money, they still make their idols. They just make them out of wood, out of cheap material. And again, the question in verse 25 is, are you going to compare me to these idols? And the answer is no, because God isn't like these things. He's greater than these things. Verse 21 through 24, it's his dominance, that God is sovereign over all things. And I'll look, look with me at verse 22. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. Towards the bottom of verse 22, it is he who stretches out the heavens like a curtain. Verse 23, who brings princes to nothing. It's talking about his rule. So when we get to verse 25, it's a summary. How do we know this? It's not in the Hebrew, says the Holy One. It's Elohe Kadosh. It's God holy. It's a personal name. It's letting us know this is not what God does. This is who God is. He is holy. He is unique. He is different. He is not like all the other idols. He is not like the rulers of Babylon. He is unique. He is holy. He is the only one who is all-powerful, all-wise, truly God, who is great. And he is the only one who puts the world in order. This is a summary of what Isaiah has already said about God. Look at verse 26. Not only is he the Holy One, but now Isaiah begins to address his people. Lift your eyes and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Verse 26 begins with two imperatives or two commands. Look, see, look, see. The idea here is under Babylonian captivity, Israel is looking everywhere but to God. 
They're looking at the circumstances that they're in. They're looking at the king that is ruling over them. They're looking everywhere but to God. So then Isaiah's imperatives, look and see. But what are they to look at? What are they to see? That's what's clear here in this passage. It is he who brings out their host by number and calls them by name. Now, why hosts? Why is the reference of hosts mentioned? Oftentimes, this word gets translated as heavenly armies, but here it refers to the stars. Now, the reason why it refers specifically to the stars is because part of Babylonian worship and philosophy is that the stars, the constellations, as the stars go, the world goes. Babylonians were very big on astronomy. They studied the stars. They looked at the stars for guidance, for, for divine guidance, for even for, 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 for prophetic guidance. They were astronomers. They looked at the stars. And what Isaiah does here is he says, he created the stars. He reminds us of Genesis. Hebrew word here, bara, to create. It is a reminder that God in Genesis chapter 1 created the stars. So this look and see is, no, Israel, it is not the stars that govern the world. It is the one who created the stars that governs the world. And he, and, and he makes the point even clearer here. It's not just that God creates them and brings them out. He numbers them. He knows them by name. He names every single star in the sky. It's an attack on Babylonian worship. Think about our horoscopes of today. How many people read the horoscopes? Oh, if you're a Leo today, you're going to see me roar or whatever. And so Leos get out and go, oh yeah, I'm a Leo. The world's going to see me roar today. And if you're a, a, an Aquarius or whatever, and depending on the month you are, there are people that literally read the horoscope like some type of religion. Like, like they, 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 they bite into every word. And that's what these people would do. They looked at the stars and that was their guidance. And God says, no. He reminds Israel through the prophet Isaiah I am the one who created them. I'm the one that numbers them. I'm the one that gives them their names. The picture here is, think of a cat lady with like a hundred cats in her house and how she names them all like nothing. Like these are all mine. This is what Isaiah is picturing to us about God, what he's reminding Israel about. These stars are nothing. God brings them out. He names them. He knows them by name. By his power, not one is missing. It's even more than just the fact that he creates and names them. He sustains them. When a star dies, it dies because God has allowed it to die. When a new one rises, it rises because God has allowed it to rise. Isaiah is reminding a people under captivity how powerful and mighty their God is. That's what we're seeing in these first two verses. This God who is almighty and all-powerful. And then we get to verse 27. How the people respond to this in some ways. Or how the people are feeling under this captivity. Isaiah says the following, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, 
My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Why do you say, O Jacob, and O Israel? This question of why is a question of lament. It's a groaning. It's, it, the picture here is the people of Israel are weeping. They're groaning. It's a, why, God? Why? Anyone ever groaned that way? Anyone ever weeped that way? Has life for some of us gotten so hard that maybe for the past months, that's been our only cry? Why am I in this situation? Why am I going through this problem? And for the Israelites, the cry is, why are we under Babylonian captivity? So here's what I want you to notice, because this is how the question is being posed. If God is so great, as we've just read briefly in these two verses and even prior to that, if God is the one who, who sustains all, who rules all, who is all wise, who is truly God, if, if, if this is who God is, if he's the one that counts the stars and brings them about and names them and decides when they are born and when they are destroyed, the people are asking if that is who God is, then why are we under captivity? Then why is Babylon our king? And now the question is in some ways hysterical because we know the answer is readers. Anytime Israel goes under captivity, it's not because God has turned his back on them. It's because they've turned their back on God. It is a consequence of the promise in Deuteronomy chapters 27 and 28 that if you obey, you will be blessed. But if you disobey, you will be cursed. And so this is a result of a people who disobey God and still they're asking the question, why? Well, the answer is because they disobeyed. But it is a cry of mourning. It is similar to David in Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, or Habakkuk chapter 1, how long, how long, O Lord, why, why is the question here? I love the Hebrew word, lama. It's a mourning cry. Christians do a similar cry. If we are Christians, I serve Jesus. The Lord is my God. Why did I get fired and not the pagan? Why am I in this situation? If I'm a believer, and why is the non-believer better off than me? This is the type of question that's being raised, and you see it in the text. Why do you say my way is hidden from the Lord? Now, this is practical, but also theological. The idea here is, Isaiah has already painted a picture to us from 12 and on on God's greatness, what theologians call God's transcendence. He is above the earth. He is greater than anything that exists in this universe because he created it. And so this question of why begins with a theological question. It's a question of, is God so transcendent that my way is not hidden? I mean, it's hidden from the Lord. In other words, 
Is God so preoccupied governing the suns and the planets and the stars and all the laws of physics and biology and anything that you can think of scientifically that he's so busy with that, so transcendent as creator, that my way, the word way there, Derek, the current condition that I'm in for the Israelites, it, it, the, the condition of being under Babylonian captivity, are, are, are we hidden from the Lord? Does God not see us because he's too preoccupied with all these other things? This is the question of why. It's a theological one. Is, is God so transcendent that he does not see my daily living? In other words, does God even know that we're captive? Maybe he's too preoccupied with the universe that he does not know that we're captive. But then, the second question, one theological, the second one a little more practical, and my right is disregarded by my God. The word there, right, is actually mishpat, which is the word for judgment. It's not simply, is this the right thing? What, what the, the literal translation from Hebrew to English would be, has the judgment escaped my God? In other words, these two questions, the first, does God see? Is he so transcendent that he does not see my daily walk, where I'm currently at? But the second one is, does he even care? Does God even care that Israel is under Babylonian captivity? Does God even care about their current condition? It's not simply... Does he not see it, but does he not care that we're being judged or governed by another nation? And again, many of us may raise a similar question when we go through trials. Does God even care about me? Does God even notice me? Does God even know what I'm going through? And so Isaiah, through, or God through the prophet Isaiah, begins to answer this question of lament. Listen, lamenting is not sinful. I would recommend a lot of you to read Psalms of Lament. Many of us think, and because we, we listen to too much Christian television, we think that it's wrong to mourn. We think that it's wrong to, to, to worry. We think that it's wrong to cry because we got to be victorious and, and we got to walk blessed and, 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 and victorious because that's all you see on Christian television. If, if, if you can't pay your bills, it's probably because something's wrong with you. You're, you're dealing with, with sin. You're not living in victory. Well, no, that's not how the Bible presents Christian living. It's okay to mourn. It's okay to weep. It's okay to, to, to wonder these things. But yet, remember, this is a passage of comfort. Now, I don't know if you'll like the comfort that God will give in these next few verses, but it's still a passage of comfort. That's why I highlighted chapter 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord your God. And so he begins to comfort their mourning and he does so by giving us four more attributes or more, four more characteristics of who God is. Look at the first one. I'm going to probably spend a little more time on this one than the other three. Verse 28, have you not known, have you not 
heard. These questions assume a yes. Oftentimes in Scripture, especially when God is speaking to Israel, the answer is obviously yes, they have heard. Obviously yes, they should know what Isaiah is about to say. And again, we've just read time and time again how God introduces himself in these verses from 12 and on. So they know his greatness. They know he's mighty. They're just wondering if God is so great, why are they under captivity? And so again, have you not known? Do you not know? And here's the first attribute. The Lord is the everlasting God. Another way of saying that, he is eternal. He is, to put it better, in God there's no beginning and there's no expiration date. He is. He has no beginning and he's got no death date. He is eternal. He is everlasting. The word is olam, and it literally means he's always present. Past, present, or future. God just simply is eternal. He is ever-present. And we see this in Scripture. When Abraham and Sarah scientifically could not have children... The everlasting God gave them children. When Lazarus was pronounced dead by Mary and Martha, and then Jesus even weeps, he brings them out from the dead. When Paul and Silas are locked up in prison, God delivers them as they begin to worship in the jail cell. It reminds me of this famous phrase, he may not come when you want him to, but he's always on time. God is everlasting. Here's the idea to Israel. You may be under captivity, but God is still on his time. God's time has not changed in eternity. He's still the everlasting God. He is reigning and ruling on his time. He's the everlasting God. This is a reference to He's timeless. I'll get to some scientific terms in a second, but he's timeless. That's the first attribute. The second one, he creates to the ends of the earth. Now, we've already seen a reference in this passage to God being creator, but here is another reference of his unique creating aspect. He creates to the ends of the of the earth. Now as Israel is seeing Babylon expand in territory after territory after territory, Isaiah is reminding them where Babylon has not yet treaded, where Babylon has not yet conquered, God's already been there. He's the creator to the ends of the earth. This is speaking of space as 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 deep or high as the North Pole goes or as in the depths as the South Pole goes or whatever you consider to be the end of the earth, especially you flat earthers, if there are any in the room, wherever you think earth ends, there God has been. He's created all the boundary markers of the earth. This is the emphasis of God as creator. There is no space in earth that God does not know about. 
So it's not just an aspect of creation as the creator of all, but it's speaking of his depthness. He is timeless, but he is also spaceless. He is everlasting, eternal, out of time, but he's also the one who creates to the ends of the earth. There is no space that God has not seen or created. He is spaceless. And then we get another attribute in this verse. He does not faint or grow weary. It speaks of God's unlimited power and strength. And we're going to get to these words three times in these next few verses. He does not faint or grow weary. Another attribute in this passage of God's power, of his strength, and the fourth one, his understanding is unsearchable. He's omniscient. He knows all. And again, we've already seen these in the previous verses, like verse 14, which I highlighted just a little bit. But that's the idea. Who consults God? Who does God consult with? No one. He's all-knowing. Who can teach God? So Isaiah is reminding Israel who their God is, mind you, even though they're in captivity. When the news hits of illness, sickness, things we cannot control, the point of verse 28 is, while our circumstances change, God's do not. When our children are acting in ways that we don't know why they're acting that way, when those circumstances change, God does not. The picture that Isaiah wants Israel to understand is while you're in captivity, God's still everlasting. God's still the creator to the ends of the earth. He's still all-powerful and he's still all-knowing. Again, comfort, comfort. Now, I know what, what we want when we go through trials. I know what Israel wanted here. They wanted immediate deliverance. We want microwave God. 30 seconds of suffering and then boom, there goes the tumor. Boom, my marriage is fixed. Boom, my economy is better. And so on and so on and so on. But that's not what happens here. Now again, it's a passage of comfort. But I want you to notice that the comfort is not in circumstances changed. The comfort comes in knowing who our God is in the midst of circumstances. This is the emphasis of verse 28. Not only is God the one who is powerful and mighty, all these attributes, briefly, verse 29, it's really self-explanatory. Because God is strength, he also gives it. Verse 29 he gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. As, as Israel under Babylonian captivity is weakening and weakening economically, maybe mentally, physically, the reminder is that although they are in captivity, God can still give them strength. God is not only the one who is strong, 
He's also the one who imparts strength to the faint, who increases the strength of those who are falling, who are failing, who are troubled. Now notice what the passage does not say. It does not say to look within yourself. The solution here is God gives the strength to the weary. God gives the power because he's the one that has power. It's not telling us, oh, when you're depressed, take a couple of depressive pills and then look in the mirror and tell yourself, you can do it. You got this. That's not what this passage is saying. It's not letting us know that when, uncircum- when circumstances, I'm sorry, out of our control come our way, that the solution is for us to, if, if you just think more positively, Oh, you want to defeat illnesses and sickness, that brain tumor? Uh, you don't know what your court case is going to end like? Well, well, if you just declare positively, maybe the tumor hasn't gone away because you're just thinking too negatively. No, the solution in verse 29 is not psychotherapy. It's also not Christian psychology. It's also not when you're feeling depressed, look in the mirror and we'll add a psychological idea sprinkled with a Bible verse and tell yourself, you're beautifully and wonderfully made. Well, that's not what this passage is saying. And in fact, those passages of Scripture are not to be functioned in that way. Christian psychology is not something that we believe in and it is not something that is biblical. That's not the solution to problems. The solution to problems does not come from within. They come from Him, from God. And so when we are in the struggle or in this passage, as Israel is under Babylonian captivity, it's not they have to think more positively so that they could be free from Babylonian captivity. They are to simply look to God who gives power to the faint and who increases the strength of Him who has no might. Now here's the warning to those that think, no, I can do this. To those that think, nah, nah, I got this. Here's the warning in verse 30. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. Even youth, there's two words here. You, you may be thinking, why youth and then young men? But there are two Hebrew words here. Na'ar is, think of a lad. It could be someone from the age of five to a 15, 16-year-old. The idea of the first emphasis here is even young boys or young men get tired. Now, for those of you that have five-year-olds, boys specifically, and I speak because my girl is an angel, but for those of you that have five-year-olds, six-year-olds, or if you've ever babysat a young boy, sometimes it feels like they're the Energizer Bunny. There ain't, no, there ain't no stop in that battery. They're going and going, and they run up and down. You take them to the mall. You take them to the jumpy places. You take them to Chuck E. Cheese. You, you give them NyQuil, and it doesn't work. You give them DayQuil, and it makes it worse. They're just full of energy, running and running and running and running. But even them, at some point, will take a nap. At some point, they will get tired. This is the the idea here of verse 
30, that even young boys, the point here is, those who we think will never get tired, eventually do. They eventually get tired. The next word is bakurim, from bakurim, it's translated vigorous young men. One is speaking of energy, the other one is speaking of strength. The young men, or vigorous young men, I believe the NASB translates it that way, but that's about as close of a translation to the original. They're vigorous. Think of a LeBron James, of an athlete who looks like they never get tired. It's, it's speaking here of physical strength. You, you think of football athletes or soccer players or track runners or whatever it is you watch, even golf, maybe not golf, all right. Uh, think of top athletes, physical specimens, men who are strong, and even they, it says fall exhausted, but really it is they faint, they collapse. The point of verse 30 is even those we think won't fall or ever get tired, do. So here's the reflection that we have to ask ourselves as we read verse 30. If a young boy can get tired, what does that say about a 30-year-old working a 9-to-5 job or a 12-hour shift? Do we not get tired physically? Of course. If even top athletes get tired, what does that say to a mother or a lady who's working hours and hours and watching children and raising children? Are they not going to get tired? The answer is, of course. Well, this is the point. If you trust in your own strength, it's going to run out because even those who we think are never going to get tired, they're never going to grow weary, well, verse 30 makes it clear they do. They do get tired. Young boys will eventually get tired. The toppest of athletes eventually get tired. What God is letting Israel know under Babylonian captivity is if you think the solution is through your military strength, you're wrong. You will fail. So what is the comfort? Not only is it comfort in who God is, but then our part. Verse 31. Mind you, this is a passage about comfort in the midst of trials. Now, you and I may not like what God says here, but it is still a passage of comfort. Verse 31. But they who wait for the Lord or hope for the Lord, both translations fit perfectly here. I'll read the rest of the verse and then I'll explain it. They shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Here's the word of comfort. Wait. Here's the word of comfort. Hope. But God, we're under Babylonian captivity wait. But King Nebuchadnezzar is ruthless. He's vicious. If you read Daniel, you'll see he threw Christians in the fire, in fiery furnaces. Really? What's the answer? Hope. Trust. Wait. Again, it's a word of comfort. 
We may not like what the text says, but still the passage is a passage about comfort. Comfort in who God is and comfort in waiting for that God who is everlasting, who is all-powerful, who is all-knowing to take action. Not when I want him to, but when he pleases. Now this is the hard part. Those who wait, it says renew the picture here is change their strength, like you change clothing. What doesn't change is the circumstance. What changes is the feeling in the midst of circumstance. Again, verse 30 is, you try on your own strength, you'll fail. Verse 31, but if you wait in the Lord, you will have new strength. They will Mount up with wings like eagle, they will run and not be weary, they shall walk and not faint. Notice that you can still run without the Lord. You can still walk without the Lord. The point here is, if you wait on the Lord, you won't fall. But if you walk without the Lord, if you run without the Lord, if you try to do life without waiting on the Lord, well, verse 30 applies to you. You will fall. You will stumble. This passage of comfort hinges on the idea of faith. Can you trust God in the most difficult of situations? And in order to trust God in the most difficult of situations, we must remember what verse 28 says, who he is. There are way too many Christians who are trying to go through the daily living struggles of life with no knowledge of God. You can't do it. You can't. You will stumble and you will fall. Verse 28 is a reminder. We must know who God is in the midst of struggle. And the more I am reminded of who God is, the more I can hope and the more I can wait for him to act. Now it is a passage of comfort. But notice what does not happen in verse 31. There's no deliverance. Did you see that? Look at it again with me. There's no deliverance here. Those who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now what this passage does not say is, and the Lord came down and delivered them from Babylonian captivity. No. This passage is a passage of comfort not under change circumstances, but rather comfort under change attitudes. They're still under Babylonian captivity. I love what this says. They will mount up with wings like, evil, like eagles. I'm sorry. This, this word here, mount up, is in the hiffle form, and it's always my favorite verb to explain because it's a verb of causation. It means, the idea here is not that God shoots us with energy of strength and then I rise up in my own strength and put wings like eagles and I begin to run. No, the emphasis is God raises me up. 
He causes me to mount like wings of eagle. He causes this renewed strength or this changed strength. He causes me to run and not be weary. He causes me to walk and not faint. This is the distinction of verses 30 and 31. It's a chiasm. You can either trust in your own strength and fall and get tired, or you can wait on the Lord and renew your strength. Israel does not get delivered in this passage, but the comfort in this passage comes from trusting and waiting in God. Now, I don't know where you're at this holiday season. And I know it's the holiday season, but it isn't always so cheerful for everyone. It isn't always so pleasant for everyone. Maybe this year has not been pleasant for you. Maybe it's been a year of struggle. And yet, this passage is clear for us that as we wait on the Lord, we find comfort. That as our eyes begin to shift from current circumstance to who God is as everlasting and as, as creator, as all-powerful and all-knowing, that's when our strength begins to get renewed. I'm reminded of Paul in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 6 through 10. Paul says, three times... I pleaded with the Lord. He's persistent in prayer, praying, praying, praying. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to remove a thorn in my flesh. What Paul goes on to say, it was there because of Satan. And three times the Lord did not deliver him. He simply said, my grace is sufficient. Now, that may not be comforting for you and me because what we want is deliverance. But Paul is reminded, and I love what he says in verse 10 of 2 Corinthians. After not being delivered from this, after praying and not being delivered and being reminded that God's grace is sufficient, he says, that is why for Christ's sake I delight in my weaknesses and in insults in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Why does Paul feel this way? Because the Lord taught him that in the midst of circumstances, our greatest strength or our moment of victory does not come at the time of deliverance. It comes in the time of hoping and waiting and trusting in God. I'm going to ask that you bow your heads with me this morning. Isaiah 40 is a reminder that in the midst of the most difficult situations, the comfort we can find is in knowing that while we may be fragile and weak, God is still everlasting and strong. He is mighty enough to give us strength in the midst of the struggle. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. 
God, thank you because you are faithful. You were faithful with Israel under Babylonian captivity, and you are faithful with us. And I pray, Lord, that this morning we would look to you and no one else. And whatever our struggles are, whatever our uncertainties are, whatever we worry about this morning, that we would be reminded that if we just hope and trust in you, if we just hope and trust in who you are, you will renew our strength. Lord, teach us to trust you and wait for you and hope in you. In Jesus' name we pray and we all say amen and amen. Why don't you give Jesus a round of applause this morning. And again, I want to invite you to just be out in the back in the lounge. We'll be back there looking to greet you and, and chat with you for a bit.